People, people say the most amazing things. They do. People say the most amazing things to you when you are experiencing something really hard. Um, it, they mean well. They really do. They just don't always get it right, do they? Okay? In 1997, I applied to three Ph.D. programs. In March of that year, I got my first letter from the first school that I had applied to saying, no, you're not admitted. And I had a number of people in my life. Max, you got this in the bag. Don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. Max, these are, you're a shoe-in for the other two schools. Max, just you know, don't even worry about that first letter. And 60 days later, I got the next two letters, and guess what they said? No! So all those well-meaning people were wrong! <laughs> wrong! Shoe-in? No, it wasn't a shoe-in. And then in 2011, so just a few years ago, after my dad died from pancreatic cancer, I had people say things to me like, you know, God must have needed your dad. God had a job for your dad in heaven. Um, things like, at least... At least you got to grow up, right? And he got to see his grandkids. That's a blessing. You should be grateful. These are actual things that were said. About the third time somebody said that God had a job for my dad in heaven, instead of punching them, what I wanted to do was go, okay, I tell you what, how about God take your dad, I'll take mine, and you know, God can put your dad to work on all kinds of things. You know? But I didn't because I'm a pastor and we're not supposed to say those kind of things. Now, in both of those cases, in 1997 and in 2011, I also got a ton of really awesome support. So don't get me wrong. It's not like it was just a sea of badness. It wasn't. But in both cases, though, I encountered people who clearly could use some upgrades when it comes to being a good friend or being a support to someone who's going through a hard time. And I get it. I do. I get it. I understand that when you've got somebody that you care about and they're experiencing pain and suffering, their husband or wife has died, they've miscarried, they've had to file bankruptcy, I mean, fill in the blank. What do you say? What do you do? How are you supposed to act? I get it. There's, you know, where do we have this training in America? Nowhere. You know, you just kind of learn as you go along. Um, And for those of you who are older, for those of you who are older and are here today, who have lost a spouse or a job or a home or who've had to walk through a very difficult medical condition, um, hasn't it been the case that for some of your friends, you've just wanted to deck them, right? Because of what they've said or what they've done or not done, and you've thought, I really do like you. In fact, I love you, but I'm going to hit you right now for what you just, you know, I can't believe you would be, right? Okay, so, and that's part of it. That is part of it, okay? So can we agree today that there, there are, clearly there are some better ways to be a supportive friend, and then there are maybe some not so better ways to be a supportive friend. And that's what I want to talk to you today. I want to talk to you today about how to be a really good friend to someone who is enduring pain and suffering. This will come up and you'll need to know these things. But in order to do that, we need to recognize right off the bat that, that people suffer differently, right? There, in this room today, there are how many different people and how many different personality types? A lot, right? It's like a box of 64 Crayola crayons. Every color is just a shade different. 
And that's how life works, okay? And so when tragedy comes, some people's way, the way some people handle it, is that they withdraw, they cave, they hide, they don't go to church services, they avoid their small group, they don't return phone calls, they isolate themselves. The, the, the temptation that you and I face when we have a friend who's doing that is to go, they just want to be left alone, so I'll leave them alone. There's another group of people that in the wake of a tragedy or loss, in the wake of pain and suffering, they become kind of self-absorbed. In other words, the only thing they talk about is that thing. I can't believe my husband left me. What? Ah! Every time you get together with them, it's not what's going on at their job or, you know, it's, I can't believe, you know, it's the thing. And you're like, oh my gosh, they're going to bring up the thing again. Here it comes. And then, ah! and then tears. And so your temptation and my temptation in that point is to, is is to basically say, um, you seem stuck. I, I think you need to just get over this, right? And that always plays out well. <laughs> that always plays out well when you have that attitude. Even if you don't say it, it's usually kind of written on your face. You know, you should get over this, okay? Then there's another group of people, and th- the way these people handle tragedy and loss is um, they, they're kind of introspective and they become hopeless. In other words, they see their part in in what it was so in the divorce you know i was a stinky husband i was a stinky wife i did these things you know i've just brought this on myself i'm always going to be alone i'm never going to find you know it's hopeless right and so you encounter a friend who's kind of in the hopeless loop and your tendency is to be like oh for crying out loud it's not the end of the world you know come on <laughs> but they're you know they're feeling kind of hopeless can right can we agree that leaving somebody alone, that leaving somebody alone, preaching to them, telling them to get over it, uh, insinuating that perhaps they're overreacting, that those things probably aren't a good idea, right? Those, those aren't a good idea. Those aren't good ideas. In the Bible, the good news is in the Bible, we have a ton of instances of pain, suffering, and misery, <laughs> right? From Genesis to Revelation, there's the pain, misery, and suffering that just kind of randomly happens. And you're like, oh, man, a house fell on you. Woo. You know, you're looking up to make sure there's not another one coming, okay? Then there's the pain, misery, and suffering that's brought on because you made some stupid choices or you turned left when you should have turned right. And you're like, oh, that was so, oh, house, kill, ooh, get the house off me, okay? So, and, and there's all of that in the Bible. If you take Jesus out of the equation for a moment, take Jesus and set him aside, there's one person in the Bible that kind of comes to the top of the list in terms of suffering, and that person is Job. Looks like Job, only it's we pronounce it Job, one of the great ironies, again, of the English language. It's not Job, it's Job. I mean, when you're a kid, you can't get over this, right? Why does God have Job in the Bible? It's not Job, honey, it's Job. And so it never really connects, okay? But so Job, just in case you haven't heard of him, his book is found before Psalms, and it's an account of what happened to him. So he falls into the category of didn't do anything wrong, and all of a sudden all these bad things happen to him. Um, His crops are destroyed. His children die in these disasters. I mean, he loses his wealth. He loses his home. He loses his kids and grandkids. He loses everything and everyone but his wife, who turns out to be an amazing support to him. One of the, 
One of the best quotes in all of the Bible come out of her mouth when she says to her husband, you know, Job, curse God and die. That Put that on a Christian t-shirt, right? Curse God and die, and then just put the Bible reference on the back, and right? So, so here he is, this poor guy, this poor guy, and he has friends. And the interchange between Job and his friends are recorded in Scripture for us. And we kind of get to peer into what his friends were thinking and assuming about Job and what Job was thinking and assuming. And so I just want to read a few, uh, a few of the passages of what his friends have to say. The first one is from Job chapter 4, verses 7 and following. And they'll put that up on the big screen. This is Job's friend, Aliphaz, who is speaking to him, um, Eliphaz. Stop and think, Job, do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed, buddy? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil are going to harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them all. They vanish in a blast of his anger. Now, Eliphaz is basically saying, Hey, I know you think like you didn't do anything, but come on. We know how the world works. You've lost your kids. You've lost your cows. You've lost everything. Clearly, the Lord God Almighty is smiting you, and you just need to face up, and you need to own up to what you've done wrong to bring this on yourself, okay? I'm here to help as your friend. Again, later on in the next, uh, the next chapter over, chapter 5, verse 17, Eliphaz, continuing to speak, says this, But consider the joy of those corrected by God. In other words, you know, you should look at what you're going through right now as the Lord chastening you. This is a good thing, you know, and so you just need to kind of lean in right now because this is awesome. Just think of what it would be if God hadn't done this, right? Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. Now, can we agree that maybe this isn't the best way to go about consoling a friend who has endured some tragedy? Right, and, and that is so the case. Job himself speaks up a few chapters later in chapter 16, verse 2. This is what Job says. I have heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Right? The whole feeling right then and there, I just want to deck you. Because you don't get it, you don't understand, and you're just preaching at me. Okay? So Job lives out and recorded in his, in his book, the book named after him, are, are all of this relational interplay with people who could really use some serious upgrades in terms of being a good friend. And Job really is innocent. And at the end of the book, he's vindicated. And God says, yep, you didn't do anything. It just happened. And so Job's friends aren't really good friends. One of the things that we see in the life of Jesus, though, is that Jesus consistently brings the A game of life. He lives the perfect life. We're told Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is the best version of what it means to be human. Okay? There is no better version than what you see in Jesus. And Jesus is a really good friend to people who are enduring things that are unendurable. And we see that in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. We were there a few years ago, but we're going to look at it through a different lens this morning. John chapter 11. Jesus had some very good friends who lived in a small town outside of Jerusalem. Their names were Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And 
we know from the gospel accounts and from church history that these guys were tight with Jesus. And he would frequently stay at their home, and uh, they were very, very good friends. So while Jesus is away at another place, something happens. And that's where we're going to pick it up, John chapter 11, verse 1 and following. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a direct message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So his dear friend is sick. He gets word, and Jesus' statement is, hey, let's, let's stay here an extra couple of days. Jesus' statement prompts John to make that statement right here. Because anybody staying a couple of days when they hear their friend is sick should do what? Pick up and go help their friend. <laughs> so, so John puts this in here. So although Jesus loved Martha Mary, okay, so he's, he's wanting you to see he stayed a couple of days. Remember, Jesus loves these people. This action right now here might not seem like it, but trust me, I'm telling you, he really, really loved these people. Okay, so staying put in that sense doesn't make sense. So let's fast forward a little bit to what's going on with the sisters, and that's verse 17 and following. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. So he's late. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people who had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. But when Mar Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. So there's, there's in, in a crisis, in a tragedy, in a loss, Mary and Martha provide a good set of archetypes for how some people will roll in the face of that. There's the Marthas of the world. So something bad is happening. I'm going to clean the dishes. I'm going to make meals. I'm going to watch some kids. We're going to clean out the garage. Let's, let's do something. You know, this is a hard thing that's going on. Let's get some things done. Notice Martha doesn't even wait for Jesus to arrive in the house. It's like Jesus coming. Okay, I'm going to meet him halfway. You know, let's get it done. Let's knock it out. Let's go. Okay, the Marthas of the world. Then in the wake of bad things and tragedy, there's the Marys. And the Marys are the like, you know, they've got their chair and they sit and crisscross applesauce. I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to cry. I just need to be. Okay. And, there, and there's the Marys. There's the Marys right there. And you've got the two archetypes in this chapter of John. Um, and it's interesting to watch how each of them kind of walks out their grief. And Jesus deals with each of them individually. I love that. He approaches Martha and Mary for where they are. And, and let's, let's, let's look through these couple of interchanges. Verses 21 and following. 
Uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he'll rise when everyone else rises on the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? So Martha's accusation is, you're too late. There's nothing you can do now. Um, and, and so Jesus, in response to that, makes a claim. This is in for the Gospel of John, one of the biggies. I am the resurrection and the life. So they're having this conversation, and Martha's like, yeah, yeah, there's going to come this day, and Lazarus will be raised from the dead. We'll all, you know, everyone will be raised from the dead to life for judgment. I get it. I, you know, I've read the book. I know how it plays out. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm that. Do you believe this? And he's wanting her to make this connection that he is linked with life. And so, uh, there's this churning that goes on. And let's pick it up, verse 29. So Mary has the same question, verse 29. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both of the sisters articulate what we have a tendency to feel when, when tragedy hits, when, some, when the ending is not the ending that we wanted, right? We feel like God's too late. Where were you? You weren't here when you needed to be here. You're too late. Can I ask you a question? Because you know this story. Many of you know the ending. Was God too late for Mary and Martha? Yes yes or no? No. He was not too late. It felt that way. Oh, my goodness, it felt that way. Okay? Remember, in the Gospels, when we see Jesus doing something, we are seeing God do something. In the Gospels, when we see Jesus respond to someone a particular way, that means God is responding to someone a particular way. When we see Jesus show compassion, it means God is showing compassion. When we see Jesus angered and indignant, it means God is angered and indignant. Can you get my I words? And indignant. Thank you. Boom. Okay? Because that's important to hear and feel the impact of what happens next. And that's verses 33 and following. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This is... This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tube, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, he said. 
want you to see in the wake of losing their brother, look at the words that John uses. Moved, deeply troubled, deeply angered, angered. He, Jesus wept. These are active things, active verbs. Jesus in his actions and by his demeanor, everyone around the graveside concludes what? Oh my goodness, clearly Jesus loved this man who died. No question about it. He cared. And so I want you to see in this passage, because remember, when Jesus does something, it means God's doing something. God is moved. God is moved by the loss that Martha and Mary have encountered. When you experience something that is hard and difficult, I want you to understand that God is moved. God is moved. Moved to compassion, moved to love, moved to action for you. And that God is at work even when emotionally it seems the opposite. In that moment when Jesus says, roll the stone aside, what Martha and Mary had assumed, you're too late, is proven wrong. God's never too late. Now, we know the end of the story. Lazarus is raised from the dead. But here's the thing. Uh, because Lazarus had been raised from the dead, I don't know if you know this or not, but a number of the people within the Jewish leadership sought to have him killed. So one of the things we know from the gospel accounts in early church history is that you know, once, once Lazarus was raised from the dead, there was a hit put on him because he was like a walking testimony that Jesus might be what he was claiming to be. <laughs> and they didn't want that. But we also know that Lazarus died again, right? And like you and me, he's waiting for resurrection day. But God cared. God was moved to action, which is the, the same thing in your life. Notice in all of this, does Jesus give Mary and Martha a long sermon about how God works in the world? No. Does he quote a bunch of scripture at him? No. He shows up. He shows up, and it's clear by his demeanor and that his actions that he cares, and that's enough. Let me ask a question in light of these passages from Job and the Gospel of John. How do you measure God's love for you? How do you do that? Do you measure God's love for you when you're healthy? Do you measure, is God's love for you measured in the balance of your bank account? How do you measure God's love for you? Um, is it getting what you want or what you feel you need? And if those things don't are taken away, if you lose some wealth or health or you lose some of the things that you had hoped for and wanted, does that mean God no longer loves you? Is that what that means? No, it doesn't mean that. It's one of the big, dirty little secrets of the way Americans roll. Americans, we have this assumption, right, that if I'm enduring pain and suffering and my friend is going to Disney World, God loves my friend and God doesn't love me. And that is wrong. It's wrong. It's bad theology. And everything from Genesis to Revelation says otherwise. Here's the second question. Would you be willing, would you be willing to be a good friend to somebody who is walking through pain and suffering. 
even if you don't feel like an expert, even if, you don't, even if you're worried that you're going to make mistakes, would you be willing to be a good friend to someone who is enduring the unendurable? I think God could use you and use me to do that. So let me offer some practical advice in light of these passages, in light of that destination to be a good friend. So how do you be a good friend? Number one, shut up and show up. You can remember that one, can't you? Shut up and show up. Just shut up and show up. It's that simple. Be present. Let them speak. Let them vent. In my 20s, I, when somebody was going through a hard time and they would say this stuff, and I'd be like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. That's not how God is. That's not what the Bible says. Da-da-da-da. And I felt this need. I had to correct them. Mm. <laughs> God's given me a little wisdom since then. And I'm telling you, even for those of you that are younger, If your friend who's going through a tragedy or a loss is saying a bunch of stuff that's even not true, just let them speak. Let them vent. Don't correct them. The time will come later on. Just let them say what it is that they need to say. There was a man uh, I knew who lost three sons over a period of a decade. That's a, you know, anybody, any adult will say to you, when they lose an adult child, it's hard. I mean, when you lose any child, it's hard. But, okay, so three of them. And this is what he said. I actually wrote it down so I'd remember. One friend, one friend came and talked to me about God's dealings and why it happened and of the hope beyond the grave. And everything my friend said was true. But I, I remember thinking to myself, I wish you would shut up and leave. He said, I had another friend who showed up and I was, you know, I was doing errands, and he just sat with me in the car. We were driving around for about an hour and a half. He sat with me in the car, and he, he didn't say hardly anything at all. I mean, just nothing. He just sat there. And when it was time for him to go, I remembered thinking, I wish you'd stay. Two people show up to do the same thing. One accomplishes a lot more than the other. So part of it is showing up and shutting up. That's, that's one way that you can kind of help someone who's, who's walking, trying to walk with God through pain and suffering. The second thing is, for the Marthas, you know, you know who you are, right? Somebody's got, you know, I'm going to bake them a casserole. Well, before you, you know, fire up the oven, <laughs> call them and offer something specific. So the, the, uh, they always say the devil's in the details. When you offer help to someone who's experienced a tragedy or loss, it's better not to make a blanket offer of help. Like, I'm here to help, just tell me what you need. You're, usually they're dazed and confused and in shock, and they're going through the motions of life, and they're not even sure what it is. So it's much more helpful for you to say, hey, I'm going to the grocery store on Tuesday. What can I pick up for you? Hey, I'm taking my kids to the zoo in Louisville on Saturday. I'd like to pick yours up. What time can I show up? That enables them, you know, you're more likely to get yeses to very specific offers along those lines. And if they say no, they say no. But when it comes to offering help, be very specific about what you're helping and and front load it that way. And several of you here have learned that very well, right? So congratulations to you. I've heard you. I've been on the receiving end of, here's what I'm going to do for you, Max. (laughs) Okay, yes, the answer is yes, right? So... The last thing is commit to the long haul. Commit to the long haul. You got a friend, you got somebody who's, boom, a house fell on them, uh, any number of things. The, the real deal, rubber hits the road, is six months from now, a year from now, 
even two years from now. A lot of people will tell you when they've lost someone, uh, someone who is very important to them has died. It's not the first Christmas, it's the second Christmas that really stings. The first Christmas, they're kind of, oh, it's the second Christmas or the second birthday that they're like, oh, ouch, mm, ah, mm, prick me, do I not breathe? You know, all of a sudden they're, you know, quoting Shakespeare and they don't even know it. Okay, so those are three things. Those are three things. Okay, so shut up and show up. Be specific in what you offer to help. And then commit to the long haul. And, and for some of you, for some of us, it's as simple as putting something in an outlook or a phone reminder six months from now or eight months from now. And you just follow up. You go, hey, I'm just calling to go, so how are you? you know, and you'll be amazed what that does eight months down the road or a year and a half down the road for somebody. Um, a number of years ago when I was a children's pastor, I was mowing my lawn. It was an August day. It was hot as all get out. So and it rained the, the previous couple of days or something like that. So the grass was all wet. And so I'm mowing the lawn. I'm like covered in sweat, covered in grass. And Jenny comes out on the back deck and she's waving her hands at me. And I'm like, ah. so I kill the mower. I go up and she's like, your phone has been ringing and ringing and ringing. Something's up. You need to go check your phone. So I go check my phone, and sure enough, there's this lady from church, lady I know very well, and she was at a lake, and one of her kids was being airlifted to the UK hospital, and it was a lady who had already encountered some hard things in life, and I was thinking to myself, what on earth do I say? What do I do? I mean, how do you, what? You know, and then God, what are, hey, God, hello, is this thing on? Do you know what you're doing, buddy? Come on now. That lady's actually here today. And I want you to hear her story or part of her story. Charlotte Lacey, come on up. Charlotte and, and Katie are some of the people who help get Generations Community Church off the ground. And I am very grateful for this lady. Everybody always checks. Is it on? Is it on? Yeah. Kaboom. Kaboom. I told myself to put Kleenex in my pocket this morning. See if they're in the pocket already. Sometimes I might not right. cry. Do you but need me to set up it with you okay. here with yes, you? Or are you good? Me, yes, yeah, I do. Okay. Um. I had three houses drop on me in a relatively short amount of time. Um, so I need to back up a little bit from, from where Max is cutting off Hot the mower. Um, in 1997, um, I started a recovery process. And everything, I grew up as a Christian. You know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. We went to church. Um, we prayed at meals. Uh, I accepted Christ in second grade. In college, I kind of went off the path and came back about a year and a half later. Um, so then, fast forward from that time long ago to um, 1997, and the framework that I had based my life on, even though I was a believer, was just shattered. And so God began showing me there are some things that need tweaking. There's some thinking that's skewed, you know. You need to start setting some boundaries. You need to start doing this other stuff. You need a good support group. You need to be talking to people. And God started putting those things in place. So that was late 1997. I was out to here pregnant with Benjamin. I'm short, so when I'm pregnant, I'm way out there. And um, so he was born in January. Two years later, 2000, woohoo, new millennium got divorced. Um, Katie's dad divorced me. And then 11 months later, Benjamin died. And that's, that's the phone call that you had. So each one of those events 
was very shattering. And so I hadn't quite recovered from the first one before the next one hit, before the next one hit. Um, so I read later, that's complicated grief. So it takes a lot longer to, you know, go through each one of those, those things. Um, one of the things that um, was ironically very helpful to me um, was there was a couple in my church, and they had been out of town, and, and they hadn't heard the news about Benjamin. So one Sunday I was talking with them after church, and she kept saying, well, how are the kids? And I just moved on. I didn't even say anything. And that was the one Sunday I hadn't cried through the whole service. Um, and then a little bit later she said, well, how are the kids? How are Katie and Benjamin? And I said, um, I think there's something you don't know. <laughs> and so I told them, and they both just bawled. Uh, you know, Mike and Danita are the ones. They just bawled tears down their face, and um, women are more prone to cry than men, you know, but as you know from their story, um, Mike was just as sensitive and tender about Matthew's death as Danita was, and he shared with me that he forgot the anniversary, it was the anniversary or the birthday of seven years, and when he realized it, it was like it was fresh, it was fresh, and it was new, and that no time had passed, and that's one of the ironic things with grief is you don't know what the triggers are going to be. That first year, everything's new. Everything hits you. Um, talking to somebody in Walgreens um, brought me to tears. And, you know, having to tell someone for the first time uh, always brought tears. And so between the divorce and between Benjamin's death, I tended to sit in the back of the church <laughs> and cry a lot for many Sundays. And... Um, one, per, one gentleman sat back there with me. He would come pat me on the shoulder. And that was comforting. Um, but all those women that I went to Bible study with, they came and brought casseroles. But none of them sat and prayed with me. Um, back in October, I think it was last year, I had been working on my house, as you all know, trying to put it on the market. I was planning on going to Alaska in January. And it hit me one Sunday. I am not going to be ready to put this house on the market. I'm not going to be able to go to Alaska. And I came into church with my sunglasses. I learned Mike's trick. He doesn't hide his tears. But I thought, I, Mike wears his sunglasses to church. I'm wearing my sunglasses to church this Sunday. And I sat in the back, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And five or six of you all came and prayed with me. You know, the one Sunday I cried, everybody got around me. They didn't ignore me. They didn't shun me. I wasn't one of those people that needed lots of help and they were too needy to sit near. You know, they, you all loved on me. You all hugged me. Um, you comforted me. You gave me, you gave me support. Um, so those three shattering events, you know, here we are many, you know, many years later and God's giving me new dreams. He's giving me new hopes. You know, I want to be a missionary. <laughs> And so I'm planning on setting, down, setting off in September instead of in, in January, um, actually leaving mid-July if we can work everything out. But um, the plan is to sell my house, so I can ask you all to pray for me to be able to sell my house this spring. And um, just God has been faithful through it all. He's provided me what I've needed. He's given me the word to comfort me. He's given me friends to hug me. Um, He's given me a church body to worship with and to sit with. Um, and you, you all have been some of the people that have done it right. And so I thank you for being 
being my church family and, and being supportive through difficult. So I can come to church and cry if I need to. I don't have to come on and put on the face. I don't have to come in and pretend that everything is okay. Um, and so I thank you all for being there for me and for Kim. Thank you. So, I mean, in a sense, it, it really boils down to just being willing to encounter awkwardness, right? Because, you know, I, I am a man. I don't just play one on TV. And anytime somebody's boo-hoo, even Jenny, whom I love profoundly, you know, there's this part of me that's like, oh, 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 you know, you know, emergency beam out, Scotty, Scotty, you know, and it, there's no emergency beam out, okay? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So simply being present. So is uh, along that path, was there maybe, was there one thing that stood out as probably the most helpful? Just, just hanging in for the long haul. Okay, yeah. hanging in for the long haul. Yeah. There, people, I use my answering machine a lot right after Benjamin died. And so later I went back and listened to one of the 30 messages. And I wrote down the ones that said, I will help, I will help, I will help. And when I got to that brain fog point where I couldn't think straight, I would go back to that list and I would say, who said they would help? And, with, and then I would think, would that person really help me with that or not? And so I started calling those people. And, you know, Mike and Danita had said, if you need to just come sit, you know, come. So I would take Katie, and we would go over the middle afternoon one day, one week. And so I started taking them up on it. Um, backing up a little bit before that, Mike had had lung surgery, and Benjamin and I went to see them. And they had this big golden retriever dog. And Benjamin just loved this dog, and they were getting wild, and I was getting freaked out. And Mike was like, it's fine. It's fine. They can't break anything. They're fine. And so Benjamin loved this dog. And that brought such joy to Mike. You know, I didn't learn until much later that that was very healing for him and a blessing to him. And then, you know, not even a year later, um, Benjamin died. And so that kind of gave us another level of grief and support. But they were one of the ones that meant it when they said, you know, if you just want to sit and visit, if you just want to come over. So there were a lot of times where I would just stop in you know, unannounced or, you know, call and say, can I come over and, and just drop of the hat, go and visit. And they meant it and they've, they've continued to stay there. And I'll ask you what I asked Anita, which is, is it worth it to lean into God instead of walking away from him? Absolutely. Um, talking to Katie this weekend, you know, I've said time and time again, you're not responsible for what happens to you. You have a choice about how you respond to it. Are you going to become bitter or are you going to become better? And, you know, she had been sharing an example from someone else in her life. And I said, okay, and is that person bitter or better? And she went, oh, bitter. And so trying to help her, you know, because so much of my early grief was spent not on myself but on my daughter. You know, it was like I was in shock for probably a solid year because I was focusing on Katie and helping her survive. So the second year of my grief and even the third year of my grief, those, you know, everybody's gone. The casseroles are gone and you still have to eat and the house still has to be clean, maybe. Um, and, and you're alone. And there was another friend um, that she would come and she would just sit with me. Some days she would clean house with me. Some days she would just sit with me and let me cry. Um, Actually, I had two friends that would, would do that with me, or I would call them, on the middle, call them in the middle of the night, you know, and just cry. And they would just sit there and pray and cry with me. <laughs> 
And, you know, I don't like to call people in the middle of the night, so that was, I knew I could count on them.